Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Daniel Strain, and I'm here with my co-host, B.T. Newberg. Hello, Hello B.T. Hi. Today, we're going to be talking about happiness. Our motto in the Spiritual Naturalist Society is happiness through compassion, reason, and practice. Well, we've talked about compassion. We've talked about reason. We've talked about practice. Uh, that's maybe the only other word that we haven't really talked about. What do we mean, what do we mean by happiness? Um, happiness is such a general word. We, you know, we have a lot of words in the English language that are so flexible and so generalized that uh, you really have to get down to specifics of what you're talking about uh, when you get into philosophy and the spiritual practices that these philosophies are based around. So um, we're going to be examining what we mean by happiness when it comes to spiritual practice. Do you have any opening remarks or thoughts, BT? Well, uh, good to be back, first of all. I used to be on this show yes. a lot, and um, so back as a guest. Um, yeah, I've got plenty of thoughts. Uh, I, I thought a lot about this when I was designing the course, but to be honest, I actually kind of want to hear your thoughts first because I feel like I've kind of molded over long enough that I've kind of arrived at what might be a bit of a deviant point. <laughs> For our community perhaps so oh that's uh, interesting let's let that be a teaser then <laughs> yeah okay yeah so why don't you introduce basically what you mean by by your kind of happiness okay i think what i'm going to say is fairly compatible with what's in the course and uh the course for those that don't know the course that bt is referring to is our uh introduction to spiritual naturalism uh course that we have uh, in the society. You can take it at your own pace on our website. And uh, what I mean by happiness, often I like to use the phrase true happiness to distinguish between all these other different forms of happiness. Um, I really like the ancient Greek term eudaimonia, but it's a little too, uh, a little too, esoteric or whatever you want to call it for these days. A lot of people don't really use that word, but the reason a lot of times people refer to these ancient Greek words is because they don't exactly translate. And sometimes they have, they capture the meaning just right. And there's not really a great translation in English. So eudaimonia, eude means um, good or healthy. Yeah, the you part is good, right? Uh, like, you, you, yeah, you're yeah. correct, you. And then the daemonia, daemon uh, refers to kind of like your your inner spirit or your soul or uh, um, we might say mind or psychology today. So it's basically, it literally means it, it, you know, more literally means healthy soul. Um, and then it has also been called flourishing, so when we're flourishing in life, it's referring to more than just we're experiencing pleasure um, or delight, but referring to 
well-being, all around well-being. So person that's experiencing well-being will be happy in the more basic sense, but they'll be happy in a healthy way, in a way that uh, is simply the reflection of their living a healthy, well-balanced, um, prosperous life, inner prosperity we're talking about here. Um, and so I think along with that comes an equanimity or a peace of mind, um, a kind of uh, acceptance and uh, calmness of uh, inside. That doesn't mean uh, not having very, you know, pleasant, joyful moments, but it does mean kind of like a, a an even keel, uh, you know, you're not constantly be on the roller coaster of pain and pleasure, pain and pleasure back and forth, these wild uh, jerky types of things. Um, and then overall, it means, you know, a happy life means the good life means the good life in, in both senses of the word good, uh, where we can, you know, it's the kind of life you would want for your, your child or the kind of life you'd want for a loved one, you know. Right, um, and the objectively happy life rather than the, like the subjective feeling of happiness that we usually refer to, right? Yeah, and this kind of happiness is not so dependent upon circumstance. Um, as a Stoic, I believe that it is possible to have happiness regardless of circumstance, but that's a little, you know, you have to really get into some of the idiosyncrasies of Stoicism to understand why that, how, why and how that can be. It might be good enough to say uh, for the general uh, practitioner that not so dependent upon circumstance. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's kind of my little opening spiel. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. Um... So yeah, I like flourishing as a way of describing it. Um, uh, when you introduce the topic to be Daniel, use the word true happiness. And I think you mentioned that once maybe so far. Um, and I think flourishing I like a little bit better just because true seems a little bit, um, I don't know. I, I, I prefer some way of describing it that's le less like mine is the more real one than yours is kind of a, kind of a thing. So mm. flourishing, I think, works pretty good um, as a, like a, an English way to describe what we're talking about if we're not going to use the Greek like eudaimonia or something. Um, now, the way the Greeks kind of might have distinguished that a little further might be between the temporary feeling of happiness, which is what most of us mean when we say, oh, I'm happy today. You know, I'm feeling really happy. You have a temporary feeling that's a positive affect and, you know, feels like everything's going good right in the moment. But as we all know, it, it doesn't last. It, it barely will last a day. You know, it'll last a couple of hours and then you'll be kind of back to set point sort of thing. But that would, that, I think the Greeks called that hedone, kind of a pleasure. Um, yeah, and, coming and, from but, hedonism. Well, that's where hedonism comes from. Rather or or than similar, that. yeah, yeah root. Yep, yep. Verse is uh, the 
the flourishing one where it's more like a mind state and according to some philosophical schools at least it really doesn't have much to do with emotion at all it's just the purely objective happiness where the idea is that someone from the outside can look at the circumstances of your life and say that's a happy life right like you've got you know everything that everyone would want out of a life but it, it doesn't even necessarily refer to emotion so that's just sort of a dichotomy that i'm setting up because i want to completely undermine that dichotomy now <laughs> Well, before you undermine it, can I do a little undermining myself? Sure, go for it. <laughs> so I agree with you on the um, doesn't necessarily have to do with emotion. Mm -hmm. But as far as the objective from the outside looking in, one of the things that I, I you know, have been struck by seeing uh, some various writings and documentaries on happiness is that you could have a person in fairly dire circumstances or what we would consider, you know, a poverty type of circumstance. And then they're very happy. And then meanwhile, you have other people that are, have private jets and all kinds of things like that. And they commit suicide. They're so, uh, you know, so, so much suffering in their life. Uh -huh. and, uh, so maybe this is where you're going and I don't want to, uh, take the steam out of that if that's the case. But I would just say that to me, the, the kind of happiness that we're talking about is not really something you can say, well, they're happy because they have this, 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 and this, and this is their conditions or situation. Right. I, I totally agree with that. Right. Oh. Um, but, but, he, but I would go even further, I guess, by saying that, even if what you're talking about is sort of like a, a, a mental state of, of clarity where, you, where you're just so together and like in tune with what you can do and what you can't do and what you can expect and what you can't expect and that nothing um, brings you down because you don't have any dashed expectations or any of those sorts of things that the Stoics or the, the Epicureans or the Skeptics or other Greek schools or, or if you want to go to say the Taoists or other, you know, all over the world, any of those sort of like objective mental states or systems that don't necessarily reference emotion at all. I would go, I would, I want to actually challenge that right there. Okay. Because I think what you're really getting at when you, when you pursue that kind of goal state whether you want to call it nirvana or an awakening or you know sagehood or whatever you want to call that i think what you're really after is a feeling but it's not the same as that happy feeling that i was describing it's a sense of meaning it's a sense that the world makes sense and everything has a place and that's something that modern psychologists now are now coming to distinguish in their studies of happiness, the difference between the happy feeling and the sense of meaning, two very different things. You can, you can be happy, but without a sense that what you're doing is meaningful. 
and you can be deeply, deeply interwoven with this, with the order of, of your life and how things work and just engaged with the world in a sense that feels very, very meaningful to you, but without feeling happy. And, and that's a really important distinction to make. So I think that the greater kind of happiness that, um, that we might be trying to talk about here is more on the end of the sense of meaning, but I, I would not go so far though as to say that it's like devoid from a feeling. I think that even still, even when we're talking about a sense of meaning, it's a different kind of feeling, but it's a feeling. And one of the reasons why I say that, oh, go ahead, Daniel. Oh, I was just going to say, I agree with your, your use of the word feeling, um, at least in Stoic scholarship. There's kind of a distinction. I mean, they didn't really use the word emotion, but they did have something that was maybe closely related, or more closely translated as feeling. Mm. And to me, I think emotion and feeling are kind of different. So when I say it's not an emotion, I, I, I think there are feelings. They're kind of like these impulses we feel. Mm. And I guess you could call them emotions, but emotion to me is a lot more um, um, like feeling would cover all sorts of subjective sensation Whereas emotion right. is a lot more, uh, there's a lot of play impulsive in and fiery. Uh, I don't know if I'm well, but also emotion has a lot of range to it. Like you can have a mm. compassion state that's not very much in terms of uh, impulse at all, or or and it's not fiery, but it's like a almost closer to just a state of mind. But yet it's still mm. thought of as an emotion. It's kind of a squishy word yeah. that way. Yeah, um, but it's kind of fuzzy. And we, all these different philosophies, they really nail these things down. You know, they say, this is what this means, and they define it as such. Mm. And we're kind of having this conversation moving in and out of different traditions and, you know, kind of cross-comparing. And so naturally, our, our, our words can get a little fuzzy here too. But I think conceptually, though, it's, it's good of you to distinguish between... Uh, you know, you're saying this is a feeling, but it's not, you know, exactly the same. Yeah, ultimately what I'm trying to say is that even when we're looking for something that seems like just a purely logical conclusion about how the, uh, your, your mind should be or how, how you should live your life, right? Like saying, for example, the Stoics arrive that virtue, there's nothing better than virtue, um, being in accord with nature, and it doesn't even reference any kind of specific experiential content, really. It's just like, no, no, duh. Like, you live the only way that nature will allow you to live because that's how the world works. Um, but I think that even so, what we're looking for, or at least what I'm looking for, is an experience. And here's why I think that. Because so many times in my life, I've explored so many different philosophical systems, didn't different philosophical and religious paths and whatnot. And I've always come to the, to the end of that being like, wow, I found this really great system that makes sense and can describe the world. But unless I actually feel like, like I have a social belonging, like I have a community or something where 
I belong to something that is all like um, wrapped up in this um, same kind of way of thinking. I no longer really, I, I lose enthusiasm for that system. It's not that I feel like the system is any less valid, but mm -hmm. just suddenly it doesn't have an appeal. And so yeah. I think that that sense of meaning, which human beings tend to get largely through social um, validation, I think that that is really a, an actual experiential thing that is being chased when we talk about uh, flourishing, happiness, true happiness, however you want to put it. Like a passion in life, right? Um, which maybe well, the passion comes out of your sense of meaning. But sometimes people's sense of meaning, uh, they get their sense of meaning from something that's tied to an external circumstance that's not really within their control, and then they get into trouble. When it comes to happiness, they get disillusioned or they get, uh, you know, because inevitably there's going to be disappointments and things that happen. But, uh, you know, like, like for myself, for example, I feel like I have passion in my life. I'm very passionate about the, the Spiritual Naturalist Society, for example, and I'm very passionate about what we're doing and all that kind of thing. But, um, and I feel like it gives my life meaning. But at the same time, uh, one of my practices, I always try to remember that one day I'm going to be dust, and one day everybody I know will be dust, and one day everybody who ever heard of me will be dust, <laughs> and one day all of humanity may be dust, will be mm -hmm. dust, certainly. Um, but yet, I still find meaning in what's going on, not that there's inherent meaning, and this is very interesting when it comes to naturalism, because as naturalists, there's not very many naturalists who would claim that there's just sort of this inherent meaning that just exists in things apart right. from ourselves. We give it meaning. We are the meaning makers. Mm -hmm. um, but yet as a naturalist, I still feel that there's meaning in my life because of the, the passion that I have for things. And the, and the, and the Stoics would say that it's that, attuning yourself to virtue, which is the thing that gives you a goal set, a, a, a passion, a, a thing to make your life be about, um, and that that's in accord with human nature, and that when we, we live in accord with our nature as social beings, as rational beings, as compassionate beings, that the natural result will be our flourishing. Mm-hmm. So uh, with the passion that you mentioned, I would, I would separate that from the sense of meaning. Certainly it can contribute to a sense of meaning, but uh, passion comes and passion goes. You have a passion for something, then you get burned out for a while, then you come back to it and you might have a spark again. But a sense of meaning is a little bit more um, overarching than even that. Um, by a sense of meaning, I just, I mean this sense that everything kind of fits together mm. and it there's something that you grok that um, that makes sense you feel like you have a place in the world you know your place in the world and it makes sense mm. and when you have that here's the interesting part for me even when you have uh, the complete lack of passion even when you have unhappiness, even when you have times of sorrow, even when you have times of 
any number of negative uh, mental states or emotions. If you have a, a worldview that makes sense of that, then even that is imbued with a sense of meaning. So for example, um, like a wheel of fortune kind of image where, you know, there's a cycle of life where, you know, sometimes you're on the up, sometimes you're on the down, and that's just part of how it goes. Um, that's out of your control that it, that it, that it's out of your control that you're sometimes going to experience suffering. Right. Uh, that kind of worldview is, helps you be able to make sense of even the unhappy times. And so you end up with this thing that sounds like a paradox when you say it in English, that you could be happy even when unhappy, but when you really understand what we mean by this greater kind of happiness or you know, this flourishing, yeah. it does make sense. Yeah, even in the face of big tragedy, you know, like this year I lost my father and uh, even in the face of those ultimate kinds of uh, uh, tragedies or losses, there's a resilience that this yeah. kind of happiness provides. Um, you see two people, if we imagine two hypothetical people, one that is flourishing and one that does not have this kind of happiness, and maybe they both go through the same or similar kinds of events. One of them is defeated, crushed, or, you know, their, their life falls apart. They don't know who they, you know, they're, they're oppressed by it. And the other one, they go through mourning. They, you know, they recognize what's going on. They're not in denial. They, they feel what they feel. Uh, but ultimately they know, uh, like you said, that, they already have this kind of bigger picture of how things are. And to me, it's like, um, at least within, you know, our tradition, within my tradition and everything, it, it's about recognizing that there is a, uh, a beauty to this grand tapestry of nature that's, that's bringing forth and making possible everything we, we do love and enjoy and experience in life. And all of that is only possible because of that impermanent, ever changing flux. And so, you know, it's this perspective shift where you already, I was talking to somebody the other day on email and uh, I said, you know, when you're driving down the road and you see a dead animal in the road, this is an experience a lot of us have. You see the dead animal and, and for some people it can ruin their day and, you know, there's a good thing about that, which means that they're a compassionate person and they feel empathy and they, uh, you know, they, they love animals and they care that something else, you know, died or, or what have you. And that shouldn't be dulled. That that's a good thing, but it does point out that, if you're driving down the road and you see the dead animal and you are moved to whatever degree, it's not about the event. It's about the fact that you forgot that dead animals are off in the grass and in the bushes and in the trees and that dying is happening all around you and within you and all around and throughout nature all the time. Uh -huh. And the degree to which you were shocked by that or surprised by that or uh, moved by that 
is a measure of that ignorance that we all have, that we constantly forget our circumstances. And mindfulness is about being mindful of that bigger picture, that larger picture of the cycle of life and death. And whatever degree of solemnity or respect or reverence you're called to when you see that dead body in the road, that just means that you were missing that before. You were, you were kind of allowing yourself to, you put it in the back of your mind. And it doesn't mean we should go around depressed about death, you know, oh, everything's dying all the time. But it means that we've incorporated the reality of our situation into our well-being and found a way to flourish within that reality as it is, not like we would want it to be or imagine it to be. Right. And so the, the, the only difference with the dead animal in the road is that it's in a clearing that allows your eyes to see it. Right. It's thrusted your it, face. Yeah. Yeah. And that gets really hard to deal with. I mean, that, that, that right there is one of those um, lessons that's just like, it's a level one lesson that's just a no duh, but yet it's like a level 100 lesson to actually be able to fully grasp in your life. And it's never mm-hmm. more true than when it's thrust in your face with like a death in the family. And Daniel, I know that you've dealt with a death in the family this year. I've dealt with a death in this family this year. And it's, it, it's devastating. And it'll show, you, it'll show you what's really inside your mind, despite all your pretensions of how advanced you've become. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's very easy for us to, uh, you know, because we want to be, we want to be more enlightened. We want to be further along in our practice to try to make it that way, fake it till you make it. And we try to, and it's easy to kind of, you know, pretend you are until something happens and then you realize where you really are. Just like you said. Um, But nevertheless, it is possible to make genuine progress along that road. And I can tell you the difference between events of similar magnitude at different states in my life and the difference of how I handled them mm-hmm. um, was a reflection of that progress. Uh, you know, when I compare and I think back and I, and I think of how I am now and um, you know, a big part of it to me is you have to have a sense of sort of an aesthetic sense of beauty about the universe that is not attached to your individual goals as an ego. You know, mm-hmm. I want this, I want that, I want to live, I don't want to die, I want some chocolate cake, I want, you know, this job, I want this car. You ha- That's the little skill set going on inside of this little lizard robot thing that you happen to be, have, have evolved in, but if you can shift your, your kind of locus of reference outside of that little mechanism and shift it more toward a big perspective of, of uh, the universe, the cosmos, uh, life, uh, the interconnectedness of all things, then I think you start to, it's not just an intellectual idea. Like you said, it's a feeling. You have yeah. to feel this connection, a relationship with the cosmos 
the kind of thing that experience it more than feel it maybe but yeah it's an experiential thing and carl sagan was so good at conveying in words these kinds of uh feel or at least uh you know bringing up within us those kinds of feelings uh when he talked about the cosmos and um you know, yeah, to me, that's that's kind of where that resilience comes from. And it's not like you're thinking, oh, the universe is going to look out for me. Now, you know, I think we're all kind of like ants clinging to a log in a storm and maybe a wave will come one day. And, you know, uh, it's not that, you know, nature is has this benevolent protection over us like a you know you can't just transpose god for nature Mm -hmm. in that sense but it does mean that there is a certain nature to reality and that nature is what has allowed us to spring up in the first place and what makes everything possible and so um yeah but it takes that getting outside the ego so that right there that vision that you just described of the cosmos and nature and everything Uh, the way I would look at that is that is a means of making the world make sense to you. Yes. When you're able to behold that vision, then you grasp a sense, you experience a sense of meaning because everything seems to then have its place. And yep, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Um, So I guess I was going to, go on then to to make the larger point just to reiterate more rather that when everything has its place then even uh, the negative experiences and times um, are also meaningful and the word resilience that you brought up i think is a a good launching point um, uh, for that talk because to me the the first thing i think of when i think of resilience is like a ball bouncing or something that's like oh, you, you're going to have a little whoopsie doodle, but you'll bounce right back. And of course you do bounce back because we're humans beings and we're human beings and that's what happens. But I would rather think about the, the darker times in life as themselves being meaningful, not being a whoopsie doodle, not being a drop the ball, but it bounces back up to your hand, but rather being a descending and a rising back up that has a place in the wheel. Um, to me, that makes it all the more meaningful and important, and it, it grants it something that it would not otherwise have in the way that I look at the world. So it's kind of a hope for a future state? No. Well, I mean, that's there too, but no, it, it itself, without having anything else around it, is meaningful because it's mm-hmm. part of who and what we are as human beings of this particular species of this particular variety that came out of this particular evolutionary process in this particular cosmos this is who and what we are this is our home and to me when you fully accept that that's that is that is uplifting in its own way even if i'm so sad about it you know you lose somebody in your family you feel sad because humans mm-hmm. feel sad. You feel shitty. I'm sorry, but it's feeling shitty. And, but feeling shitty is meaningful. Yeah. It's who and what we are. 
you know, I'm going to get kind of nerdy here because I'm a Star Trek fan, as you know. And, uh, Star Trek has many times uh, uh, illustrated this point in uh, various different stories. Mm-hmm. I can think of two right now. One is for the fans of Voyager. Uh, okay. There was yeah. a holographic doctor. Yep. The computer the character, right. And yep. he... Uh, uh, but he's a very, he's intelligent. He's, and they make him so intelligent where you're thinking, okay, well, he's probably like actually conscious and everything, but he wants to experience what life is like and for humanity. And he wants to, you know, broaden his understanding and all that. So he makes a holographic family. And at first they're all perfect. And then the rest of the crew tells him, you just oh, made it oh, yeah. too perfect. Right. That's not reality. And so, uh, they reprogram it to be more realistic where anything could happen. And then, you know, his daughter gets uh, some disease and she's going to die and all this. And so he turns it off because he can have his emotions too. And he turns it off and he says, Oh, I canceled that experiment. I decided I didn't need to do it. And they're like, Hey, in real life, you don't get to jump yeah. out when it gets uncomfortable. That's yeah. of life. You don't get to abort the program. Yeah. And then, so the other example from Star Trek that I'm thinking of is comes from the original Star Trek. Uh, and unfortunately it was not one of the best movies in my opinion, but Star Trek, <laughs> the final frontier was, uh, uh, Spock's brother has this psychic power to like turn people into, he takes away all of their negative memories. And so okay. they can turn into this happy, blissful zombie mm. and then he can control them and everything. And Captain Kirk says, I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. It's part of, it makes me who I am. You know, it's, it builds, mm-hmm. it builds everything of, I've come to be is included all of those different experiences. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, that's what I was <laughs> reminded of as you were saying that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I'm a big Star Trek fan myself, actually. I don't, I don't, didn't remember Star Trek five though. I might have to go back and watch that. Uh, yeah. That's the only good part of that movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was one of the odd numbered movies. And so for a while they had a thing going where only the even numbered movies were very good. <laughs> well, um, now we're going to get hate a, man. to put a, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> to put a, to put a fine point on what we're talking about here to kind of draw it together and, and conclude a bit, at least for my part. Um, I guess I want to kind of pull it together by saying that when we think about happiness as like the goal or the desired state, even if you're, even if you belong to a path where it's like the goalless goal, where you, you can only attain it by not trying to obtain it, that kind of a thing. um, It still is like, esteemed and idealized happiness is right and Mm -hmm. to me i feel like uh because of the fact that happiness in my mind includes a whole lot more than positive uh, feelings i feel like i make progress toward that flourishing kind of happiness the more I accept that it's really not all that different from normal experience. It's just that you understand all of the texture of it so that it all fits together. Like I was saying, that you you get that sense of meaning. 
No matter what, it's hard to think of happiness without also thinking of something that's like pseudo paradisical, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just hard to avoid that. And it would be kind of inhuman to expect to go through life with this, like, you know, smile on your face, no matter what happens. Right. Um, But, you know, it still might be hard for some people to parse out the difference between pleasure and happiness. The Stoics talked about joy and and that was an approving thing. They said this joy, but joy arises from true judgments about the world. Whereas delight uh, was this other very different technical kind of thing that arose from false judgments about the world. Um, Things you tell yourself are good are not necessarily good. Maybe they're just neutral, but you tell yourself that because you're feeling this direct pleasure from it. And uh, that's not to say there's anything wrong with pleasure. Pleasure can be a spice in life and that's wonderful, but uh, pleasure is a poor substitute for happiness um, because it's so fleeting. And so uh, the Buddhists talk about this, the, what's it called? The karm? Uh, no, it's called the, the something wheel uh, of chasing, you know, one uh, light right. after the other. Um, um, is that the dharmic wheel or the hedonic wheel? wheel. Or is it, yeah, okay. Maybe it's the hedonic wheel. I don't think that's Buddhist, but it's, it's compatible with Buddhism. But that term, I think, is... is yeah, it's escaping me at the moment. Yeah. But anyway... Uh, yeah, it's that chasing one thrill after another, one pleasure after another. That is what a trap that a lot of people fall into. They're trying to find happiness. They're trying to find flourishing. And they don't really know how to get there. So they just chase pleasure after pleasure after pleasure. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, pleasure's fine, but not as a substitute for happiness. And so to really get to happiness, it, it's hard to communicate to people well, how can you be happy regardless of circumstance? How can you be happy when your 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 possessions are lost or your reputation is ruined or your job is lost or you lose a loved one? You know, how can you be happy? And um, the you know we don't really have time to go into the details of of Stoic philosophy, but I just really love the way they do it. They parse things out in such a way where you start to look at things differently and you start to, your, your, uh, your locus of value shifts so that what you're valuing is not um, the immediate pleasure, but you're moving your va- your sense of value to be on what kind of person you want to be. Um, and if, if you're trying to be a, a virtuous person, a compassionate person, and that's your goal, and that's kind of where things seem meaningful to you in that way, and you shift your, your, your goal to something more compatible with our, our deeper nature as human beings, a healthy psychological nature, then um, what you start to do is it doesn't become about achieving certain external circumstances. It becomes about being doing the the thing because it's the kind of thing that the person you want to be would do and so if i want to you know feed the hungry it's not about necessarily even being successful in that endeavor i'm not going to feed every hungry mouth in the world there's going to be people that i can't help Mm -hmm. but 
it's about the fact that I am living that life trying to do that. And that's having a formative effect on my character. And it's given me a sense of fulfillment. Um, so it, even then it's not about the external circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if we can rest knowing that we are living that good life in that sense, then the good life in the sense, in the other sense will follow. The way I would, uh, would look at the external circumstance bit, and I'm a little bit different here, but I think ultimately we're mostly compatible. I would say that in my way of making sense of like the ups, the downs, all part of the meaningful pattern, external circumstance is always going to affect you as a human being, always. But what it affects is primarily your feelings, emotions, mood states. The meaningful pattern can still be seen in those effects, in your ups and downs that um, external circumstances bring. Yeah. And thus, no matter where you find yourself on that uh, pattern of ups and downs, there is simultaneously also an appreciation of that meaning that brings a flourishing. And I, I do totally acknowledge that you can lessen to a lesser degree or sometimes to a greater degree how much the external circumstances influence your mood state. Some, some people seem to be able to uh, do it, you know, to uh, <laughs> an almost supernatural seeming degree. And and that's also, that's also possible. But ultimately, I feel like as human beings, we belong to the world and the world always will affect us. And so I like to think of us as interwoven with those external circumstances. But as long as you see that full pattern, there's another dimension to it that is able to be appreciated, that meaningful sense. It sounds like uh, your tilt your tilt is more toward Epicurean and mine is more toward Stoic uh, in that regard of <laughs> external Maybe. circumstances. Those guys have been arguing about that for centuries. But uh, uh, yeah, the um, you know as you know, I think it is it is true, like you said, that a, an extraordinary amount, of, I mean, an incredible, surprising amount of of uh, conditioning can happen within a homo sapien mind uh -huh. uh, to where it almost seems supernatural. I mean, when you see, you know, monks who are able to sit in a meditative pose and not react as they're on fire, you know, and things like this. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, it is also in a sense, in a practical sense, unrealistic to form everything around that when you know the vast majority of people just don't have the time and the, the ability to ever get to that kind of a level. So it can't they're be not going to find themselves on fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can't be about that. It has to be about, uh, you know, what can we practically achieve? I think those ideal right. models are very helpful Yeah, because they kind of point the direction of what we're going for. And you say, well, how does that person get that far? You know, maybe I can get right. a little further by examining that. But, uh, but also there are these intermediate steps along the way, and that's what's great about it. it you know, naturalistic, spiritual naturalist enlightenment is not this Im immediate moment where you just suddenly are 
joyful and and happy and enlightened and before you weren't it's this it's this progression and you see continuing rewards the further along you move mm-hmm. i want to come to something real quick because um you've been talking about meaning and and everything making sense and all that kind of stuff people are generally very familiar with how supernaturalists do this um particularly um you know in our culture christianity for example They'll say things like, well, God has a plan and, you know, mm-hmm. in the end, we're all going to heaven. You know, that's how they make sense of all that. What a lot of naturalists don't necessarily have, and one of the reasons why SNS exists, is to, to, to know, well, how can naturalists make sense of something that, you know, makes sense to them, given our scientific world we look and we see in a way that isn't just, you know, uh, oh, we all turn into worm food and that's it, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. um, and so that's a, that's a fascinating topic in its own right. You know, how does a naturalist make sense of things in a satisfactory way? What would you say to that? I think that you were already getting at it earlier, at least the way I do it, it was what you were describing. And that's um, getting back to that vision of the, the cosmos the vision of big history, the vision of evolution and how, you know, the scientific explanation of like, there are reasons why we are the way we are because we come out of the, of the world, which is as it is. Um, and, and so that, that sounds so um, like high level abstract, like this could never have anything to do with myself. We're talking about black holes and stars right now. Mm-hmm. Um, or like bacteria in a boiling, you know, ball of goop way back millions of years ago. No, but it really, 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 really has a very immediate and deep effect on uh, personal life when you really grasp what it means for you. And um, to me, it's really driven home by Michael Dowd and one of his stories of his experiences. Um, so Michael Dowd, um, longtime listeners of of this show will probably have heard. I think he's even been on the show, right? But he's a evolutionary evangelist. He calls himself, right? So mm-hmm. he used to be a Christian fundamentalist, and now he's, he's also on the advisory board of the SNS. Yep. Yeah, and uh, and now he's kind of flipped to the other side and goes around in a van with his with his wife Connie Barlow, and they um, preach the good the good word of evolution, <laughs> basically, yeah. right? And especially lately, they've been focusing on the importance of, uh, you know, tending to our environment. They're doing really good work. Yes, yes. Now, the thing that I want, the example from his life experience that I want to draw on in order to really drive home that this could really be very personal and meaningful in everyday life is um, the, he found when he, back when he was a fundamentalist, that as he grew, as he rose in um, sort of status within his community, basically, um, became a little bit more of a respected and revered figure within the, the Christian fundamentalist movement, he was having trouble with infidelity. And of course, that went against everything, all the values that he stood for. And it was eating him alive because he was thinking, how can I be a shitty person? <laughs> I mean, this, the, I don't want to be this person. What's going on inside me? The, and it's just like, am I really just a bad person? And it's, he was riddled with guilt. 
it was destroying him. But the way he looks at it now, while not excusing anything about his behavior, gives him a sense of meaning that comes out of who and what we are as evolved human beings. Now he understands that there's a reason why we evolved uh, certain like lusty behaviors and why that's related to rises in status because um, you know, at, it's been shown in scientific studies that as you rise in status, you also have a spike in testosterone, which increases your uh, risky behavior tolerance. Mm -hmm. That's not the right way to, to say it. That's not the technical term, but basically you're more prone to risky behavior, which makes you, uh, which drives you to take greater risks and be able to spread your seed further by taking risks outside of your established mating relationship, right? Mm -hmm. And that has obvious um, evolutionary um, advantages if you're trying to spread your genes, right? So there's a reason why we're built that way doesn't excuse anyone from that behavior, but it gives a meaningful, uh, it gives that shitty behavior a reason to exist and a place within the big picture where he's no longer being like, am I a bad person? Now he's like, oh, I'm an evolved human being. It makes sense that I would have these feelings. Now let's just get on with dealing with them. And, yeah. and he is much more at ease with himself and uh, presumably much, uh, much better at keeping, <laughs> keeping faithful as well. Well, so evolutionary psychology for the naturalist kind of filled that position that for the uh, literalist Christian used to be the uh, taking a bite out of the apple and the fact that we we're all born with sin. Uh, that, that, the myth of the Garden of Eden and the fall of man and our, our evil nature because of that, that was kind of what filled that spot for the that, uh, literalist Christians. Well, that Augustinian type uh, theology, yes. But, I've, but there are so many different other strains that came along. And, and like, um, there, I feel like in, within uh, many strains of Protestantism, there's a real sense of like, if you're a bad person, it's because you're a really bad person. It's not because yeah. of the original sin. It's like, no, there's a difference between the elect and the condemned. Yeah, well, that, that's, a, that's a good example of, uh, of how, you know, the, the naturalist perspective in modern scientific understanding can be incorporated into our worldview to help us. Um, Speaking of which, I guess we're getting close to the end of our time, but I just, I, I would feel remiss not bringing this up. We haven't really spoken about the role of biochemistry in happiness and what, how does that interplay with all this philosophic spiritual practice stuff we're talking about? Hmm. That's a really, I mean, maybe we could almost do a whole other episode. Just <laughs> because, I mean, it's a huge can of worms to open here in the last few minutes, but um you know, in our society today, we have all of these various medications, and there are a lot of people saying that we're over-medicated and that they're too easy to get, and doctors are prescribing them too much, and there's all this uh, economic motivation, uh, you know, big businesses trying to make money kind of behind the whole thing. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who have been really helped by these things when they are used properly in the right conditions. So, you know, 
I, I feel like there is a lot of underappreciated power in cognitive therapy and uh, in the kind of philosophies and practices we're talking about. And so that makes me want to say, well, let's at least, you know, have people try that first before they go to something that may have a lot of long-term side effects and, and things like that. But um, anyway, that's a huge complicated issue. Yeah, that, that, is a, that is a whole other episode. That's true. The yeah. one thing I would say is nothing has been driven home to be more the older I get than the fact that there are all different kinds of people. And the kind yeah. of person that you and I are, Daniel, and probably that a lot of your listeners are, is a fairly slim segment of the, the overall population. And for those of us who in, enjoy introspection, who yearn for introspection, who get a kick out of introspection, um, I think that definitely introspective practices like cognitive therapy and whatnot could be a huge help. For other kinds of people, it may or may not be. I have certainly encountered people that I deeply respect and consider to be very intelligent and very mm -hmm. engaged with their life, but who have gotten absolutely zilcho out of meditation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same zilcho. here. Zilcho. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, just like with the religious issue, um, we're here to provide some interesting pathways that people can explore and learn about to whatever level is right for them. And we don't get into judging people about what mm -hmm. they do or what's right for them. And I think that's a great stance to take in all of this, you know, we're just here to talk and share ideas. And um, yeah, I, I agree with you though. That would be a, a neat topic to, to approach it with. Whole episode. <laughs> Um, so it looks like we're about at the end of our time. Did you have anything else you wanted to add uh, to close us up? No, I think that's, I think that's pretty good. I, um, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, there's, you know, this, these topics are huge in every single tradition, not to mention a multi-traditional kind of approach we've been taking here. Uh, so, you know, if you're interested in this kind of thing and want to learn more, check out our website, check out the course, check out uh, more episodes of the podcast, the articles, you know, there's all kinds of things we're doing here and let us know what you think. Um, we have a comments page uh, on each episode. And so uh, feel free to leave a comment there or to write us uh, at our contact page on our website. So, uh, and now by the way, um, yeah. we've, we've got a simpler website. It's, snsociety.org, which is a little shorter to type than spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Oh, um, okay. Either way, you can get to us with either name. So, so the old URL still works and goes to the Yeah, same. we had to leave that because a lot of people have it bookmarked and, you know, what have you, but, huh. okay. but the shorter one, it'll, it'll get you there too. Yeah, the old one is, was, yeah, was quite long. So spiritualnaturalistsociety.org, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, okay. Sure, fair enough. Oh, I did want to mention that uh, you mentioned the brought up the course again. Um, so everything that we've been talking about today, the course is solidly focused on all of this and drills way down mm -hmm. deep into it. Absolutely. Um, we've yeah. only been able to just give the big, the broadest overview um, and skipping all the important details and all the important steps and the building blocks <laughs> of how you even get to, you know, so, um, so yeah, I mean, the course covers a whole, 
um, range of topics related to spiritual naturalism, but the, um, the pole star around which the whole celestial cosmos of the course turns uh, is really this, this idea of flourishing. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, for those that don't know, uh, BT designed our course and uh, it has been serving us very well. We have a lot of people now who have become our alumni, you know, people who have taken the course and uh, completed it. And uh, we built a little list recently this month so that they could all keep in touch and continue to uh, learn from one another. So yep. yeah, anyway, uh, so that's our episode for today. And uh Please join us next time and feel free to have a look at our other episodes uh, if you haven't already. And I uh, hope you have a wonderful month. Thank you. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.